The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kim Eshkian. He is an analyst at Stansbury Research and the editor of the SNA Global Contrarian Newsletter. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with your background again, both as an investor and as a, a world traveler. Kind of give us a sense of what you bring to the party as far as your investment ideas. Sure. Well, I've, uh, I've lived outside, uh, outside the United States for most of my life. I grew up in Spain, and then I lived in, uh, in Russia for about nine years. I've lived in uh, half a dozen other countries, Armenia, Ireland, Sri Lanka, Kyrgyzstan, Mexico, the Netherlands. Um, between work and, and study, and I professionally I was a, uh, a securities analyst and a hedge fund manager in Russia for a long time. I've been a consultant in capital markets development in Armenia and Sri Lanka and Kyrgyzstan. I've uh, I started off working on Wall Street for a while, and I've also uh, been a political risk consultant for a few years, looking at the different dimensions of political risk and how those apply to the investment environment. So. I've uh, no, I've lived lived around, worked in a lot of different markets, worked with people who speak I don't know how many other different languages and come from I don't know how many other different cultures. Um, so that's what a uh, that's the sort of background and context I try to apply to to what I do at uh, at Global Contrarian. So let's kind of take so that you've had lots of world experience all over the place in different countries. Let's get into kind of the way you look at investments. You're you're a contrarian, so. Are you looking for as much trouble as possible, and that's where you find value? Or what? What? How, how do you go about finding uh, the, the things you think are of good value? Well, I start off with looking at markets where I look. Uh, kind of the first cut is looking for three things. First, where uh, where you have terrible sentiment. So, where you read in the Financial Times a particular market is in deep trouble, or a country is just going down the tubes, or uh, you see on CNN and all you hear about this particular market or country is crisis this or crisis that. So after sentiment, I look for low valuations because if people don't like a market, it follows that valuations should be low, obviously, because if valuations are high, that would suggest that people do like a market. So whether it's absolute valuations or relative to historicals or relative to the region, valuations have to be pretty low. After sentiment and valuations, the third thing is some sort of catalyst because, as we all know, a cheap asset can be cheap forever, and a cheap asset can always get cheaper. Um, so I look for some sort of trigger for things to turn around, and this trigger is generally something that most people don't think will, will, will happen, because as soon as a lot of people do believe it will happen, then the market will re-rate. So it has to be some sort of catalyst that's underappreciated in the market, um, whether that's a regulatory shift or a political change or... Maybe it's something as 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 simple as a few 
events that put a country in a good light in the in the international spotlight. So now it's it's often difficult to get all three of these things: bad sentiment, low valuations, and, and clear catalyst together at the same time, because well, markets aren't perfect, and uh, and it's a very global markets are a very busy place, and you have a lot of people looking for different indicators. But I try to get at least some element of these three things in any market I look at. So what would, what would now, be some examples from the past where uh, you did see, before we get to the present, from the hmm. past as to where you did see tremendous valuation and then there was a catalyst and things turned around, Based and most people didn't see that coming? Yeah, um, there is, well, I'll tell you an example in one second. The, the one thing to remember is that often I think people sometimes stretch to be contrarian and they view being contrarian as a, thing in itself. It's only a good thing if it makes sense, because often consensus is uh, is correct. <laughs> so it's often there's a good reason for sentiment to be bad and valuations to be low. So often it is a case of actually uh, uh, well, the, the trick is distinguishing between when consensus is correct and when it does make sense to be contrary. And one, one example, um, a number of months ago, uh, I've visited, well, I've, I've looked at Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is an enormous country uh, in Central Asia, it's about 17 million people. It's not really on very many investors' radar screens. It, uh, it pretty much floats on oil and gas, but it's a pretty small market. It's a pretty small country. Um, I uh, lived next to it for, for uh, a year, some years ago, and I've always followed it. Um, after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, it pretty much slipped off the radar. It was, within the, the region, a kind of attractive market, but then no one really paid attention to it. I went there late last year um, to see how things were going, and, and things that, well, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of Kazakhstan is its capital. It's a city called Astana which 15 years ago was just this dumpy little city in the middle of the Siberian steppe of 200,000 people. And then at one point, the country's president said, you know what, I want to build a real capital that does justice to this great country. So he built from pretty much nothing this astonishing capital. It's full of absolutely amazing buildings and is architecturally uh, extraordinary. Um, so you see that sort of that sort of attitude and that sort of motivation. So that's that was one one context. Now, so that was a catalyst, be, really. It was him changing it. Yeah. Was that, that that's what the catalyst was in that case? Is the political? Well, in this, you know, I'll get to the catalyst in a second. This was more. Okay. Sorry, that was that was just a little digression to kind of explain the sort of mentality that is in um, in in Kazakhstan and the Kazakh government right now, and what had happened after the financial crisis. The Kazakh banking sector was absolutely decimated. It had uh, non-performing, non-performing loan levels that were far and above those of any other country in the world, even five years later. So the Kazakh economy was doing well um, after the crisis because it had enormous natural resources. Um, and the, uh, but the one thing that was lagging was the banking sector. So uh, the banking sector had not really recovered. Um, it had made... All, huge loans to the real estate sector in Kazakhstan. There was a bust in the real estate sector. So non-performing loans were something at something like 32%, and that uh, even Ireland was only about half of that as of last year. 
So when I went to Kazakhstan, I looked around for, spoke with people to understand the different aspects of political risk and, and where things stood. And one thing that stood out to me was that pretty much everyone I spoke with said, you know what, the banking sector is a mess. It'll be a mess forever. Um, there was one, there are two traded Kazakh banking stocks. One of them is called Kazkomerz Bank. Um, and that was the one stock that everyone I spoke with said, this bank is an absolute nightmare. Now, I did a little bit of digging in to the banking sector, and one thing that was becoming increasingly clear was that the Kazakh government was tired of having uh, its banking sector be just such a disaster. And this is a country that said, you know, we want to build a capital on the Siberian steppe, and they built it. Um, there's a very strong sense of national pride, and it sounds kind there's of There's an autocrat that can make things happen, too, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. The president of, of Kazakhstan has been around since the Soviet era, and uh, he, uh, he's not afraid to, as you said, make things happen. And so what he did uh, last autumn, he replaced the head of the central bank. And there were rumors of regulations that were going to be issued about measures, tax measures, and, and other tax incentives to encourage banks to be able to write down more of their bad assets. And also, on the other side, there was some support for the real estate sector, which could drive real estate prices, which could help reflate the balance sheets of some of the banks in uh, some of the local banks. So... You put that together, you have the political will, you have the, uh, the motivation to actually pass regulation that can help the banking sector improve its status, and you have something that's, that looks so bad. One of the things when I talk about sentiment is if you can only find bad things to say about a country or a market or an economy, and it's almost difficult to see how things get worse, then by, you know, almost by definition, things can only get better. So if the Kazakh banking sector had the world's worst levels of non-performing loans, and everyone agreed it was a complete and utter disaster. What's the next step? What can happen? Well, the chances are pretty good it can only get better. So going from really bad to less bad itself can be quite profitable, right? Exactly, because, Jordan, it's just that little change in sentiment when people suddenly say, oh, wait a second, it's maybe not so bad. All right, I'll just I'll put a little bit of money into that. And when you have an asset or a stock that everyone has sold, and there are just a few people who are still bothering to hold it. It doesn't take that much money in terms of investors, in terms of funds flow to move that from, from you know, to, to make a multiple of your money quite quickly. And what so happened what, with, what happened with the Kazakh Bank? Well, what happened with Kazakh Bank? This was, as I said, this was a, a bank that no one liked. Um, and I, uh, I recommended to my readers um, investing in December, uh, at shares worth a dollar and fifty six cents, and this I, I haven't really mentioned valuations, but this was uh, about sixty seventy percent cheaper than pretty much any other bank you would find in the world in terms of price to book value, which is generally how you value banks. And there are a lot of good reasons for that, as I've described. Um, and a lot of people didn't really trust the accounting, so they didn't trust the actual book value. That is what the assets, whether the whether the value of the assets that the bank said they were, if it was actually, if that was a, a true reflection, reflection of the value. So this is, this is not a, a this is not a low risk sort of trade uh, or investment idea, but what happened is that the, a lot of the good news that I had heard of, I, that I had anticipated started to filter through into the market. 
in terms of the regulatory environment, in terms of other measures to help the banking sector get off its feet. Um, and Kazakhstan's uh, Bank wound up merging with another bank in Kazakhstan to form by far the, the largest bank in the country. And the largest bank in the country would, in any case, be a showcase for what the government try- was for what the government was trying to do with the banking sector. So the last thing they were going to do was to let this whole experiment fail. Now, what happened subsequently for uh, minority shareholders, that is normal people who are invested in the bank through, uh, through shares, is that the bank started the buyback program. This is just about a month ago. And they said, you know, we want to buy back the shares of all the minority uh, investors. A, a lot of the bank was held by a few very large investors. So the share price went from, by then it was about $2, $2.50. It went up to about $5 quite quickly in a matter of two weeks because of this buyback. And the buyback was going to be at $5.20. Wow. So... It was like five um, times on your money, basically, in six months or so. Uh, it was $1.56 to about $5, so three and a half, uh, uh-huh. three times, three times a change. Yeah. Which, um, and that, I mean, that was when... Sorry. That's pretty dramatic. We, we actually do have to take a break, Kim. So I'm going to take okay. a break now. We're going to come back. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is uh, Kim Ishkian. He is the editor of the SNE uh, Stansbury Associates Global Contrarian Newsletter. A lot of interesting things going on around the world we're going to uh, talk about. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kim Ishkian. He is the editor at the Stansbury Global Contrarian Newsletter. Welcome back to the show, Kim. Thanks, Jordan. And just tell people how they can get the newsletter if they want to find out more about it. Well, if they want to find out more about it, they should go to www.globalcontrarian.com, and there will be, and that will direct you right to a page to to uh, that will have some background on the on the product and on me and how to subscribe. Very good. All right. Now the other big area in in uh, controversy right now is what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, and you've been there somewhat recently. So, kind of give us a sense of the. Uh, the political landscape since Russia took Crimea and they've been kind of causing all this trouble in eastern Ukraine. We've had this plane shot down, there's fire going back and forth. Uh, and what are the economic implications? Because you have the Russian stock markets incredibly cheap because of all this. But how is this all going to play out as an investor here? Well, I think um, it's helpful, Jordan, to just take, take a step back and, as you suggested, look at the political landscape. I think something that a lot of people, at least in the West, don't recognize is that Ukraine is a red line issue for Russia. And I guess the uh, one analog is, is that if, if one day Canada were to say to the United States, you know what, we're kind of thinking of leaving the free trade agreement with, with the United States and, and, and Mexico, and we're going to join up with China, and we're going to have a military alliance with China, and they're going to be our closest partner. And... Mm-hmm. That would cause a lot of consternation in this country because Canada is an important ally and it's right on the border. Well, what's happened with Russia over the past 20 years since the end of the Cold War is that its entire former sphere of influence, that is the Iron Curtain, that includes a lot of Central and Eastern Europe, that includes the Baltics, that certainly includes Ukraine, all of that has been slowly, um, has slowly joined the West. It's joined the European Union. A lot of those countries have joined NATO and Ukraine is kind of kind of like the final stand. This is the last Ukraine borders Russia. And in the eyes of a lot of Russians, the West has been slowly eating into its sphere of influence. And if the West kind of takes over, so to speak, Ukraine, then it's only a matter of time before Russia's own territorial integrity is under threat. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think uh, when you put it through that prism, uh, Vladimir Putin... For him, this is not something he's going to back down on very easily because this is something he has, for one thing, a lot of political capital invested in. And for another thing, a lot of Russians do feel quite strongly that um, if Ukraine joins the European Union, then it's just a question of time before the West is really going to be, well, it's going to be literally on Russia's doorstep. And they have signed the contract. I mean, when the new government came in, Ukraine did sign a trade agreement with the European Union, right? So they've done it. Yeah, they have they have laid the groundwork for that. They have done that, and that uh, well, <laughs> that's that's a cause of a lot of problems for Russia, because Russia is concerned about what's going to happen next. So, what they've been doing a lot of the a lot of their efforts in Ukraine is to try to destabilize everything. And yeah. I think the thinking is that if they can get Ukraine and the West to sit down and sign some sort of deal, whereby Ukraine will never join NATO, which is a North American um, uh, military alliance. Uh, and also if certain regions of Ukraine will be allowed to maybe not join Russia, 
but will be allowed to have some greater degree of of, uh, of independence through some sort of federal structure. That's what Russia wants. But in the meantime, um, there's a lot of uh, well, there's a lot of a lot of territory to be covered between here and there. And we see. So, so what, what are going to be the effect of the sanctions? Because every time they've made a move, whether it was grab Crimea or cause all this trouble in eastern Ukraine, the West, led by the United States, but now Europe as well, is imposing harsher and harsher sanctions. Uh, is this not going to hurt Russia? That Putin just doesn't care about these things? I mean, aren't these sanctions going to really start to bite? Well, sanctions as they are now will bite. They'll bite less today than they will several years from now um, for a few reasons. First, uh, a number of the most important sanctions focus on the energy sector, and Russia is one of the world's largest energy producers. But its production is in decline, and what it needs to do is invest in a lot of shale and other unconventional um, uh, fields um, in the Arctic and elsewhere. But it needs Western technology and know-how to do that. And what these sanctions really, really bite on is uh, Russia's access to this sort of technology. So. As Russia's energy production declines, they're not going to be able to keep it level or boost it if they don't have access to, to what, for example, Halliburton, what Schlumberger, what a lot of these American companies have. So that's one aspect where, um, where sanctions will bite. But, I mean, they've aspect. gone ahead anyway. You no, know, there have been milder sanctions, and then they went ahead and shot down the plane, and then they've been you know, shelling into Ukraine and so on. and imposing more sanctions doesn't seem to stop them whatsoever. So let, let's get to the economic part of this now. So you're saying this is going to hurt Russia. Their stock market is incredibly depressed and very, very cheap. Uh, do you see investment opportunities there? Is there a catalyst for things to turn around? Because right now, it's as you say, people are very, very depressed and see almost no hope for things turning around in Russia right now. Well, I think Russia, in return, I've made a living for, for years trying to tell investors, international emerging market investors, that Russia was actually not such a bad place. And when you look at the history of Russia's valuations, the, the history of the stock market valuations relative to the rest of emerging markets, for years it's traded at a big, a big discount. So if other emerging markets trade at a price-to-earnings ratio of, let's say, 12 to 14, Russia for years has traded between 7 and 9, more or less, and right now it's around 5. Yeah. And what... Like I said, what I used to say was, look, Russia is not that different from other emerging markets. Vladimir Putin is not such a bad guy, and this big discount should not exist. But then, well, what happened was Crimea and everything else. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, these investors say, wait a second, all that political risk that we thought Russia, um, you know, that was part of the, the discount. Actually, that political risk is real. So yeah. I think that the Russian stock market is going to trade at a PE of, let's say, five, maybe seven for a long time. And if you're a, a trader and you like playing on the volatility, you might buy it when it, it's four and then you wait for it to go back up to six and you can make, you know, quite decent money on that. But if you're is a, there a potential scenario where the sanctions really bite and as you say, they can't do exploration and Putin says, sorry, I didn't really mean it. I'm going to be a nice guy now. Go ahead, Ukraine, join the European Union and let's make peace and have a reset and then the market would soar. You know, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> Vladimir Putin, has, his, his approval rating uh, recently was at 86%, and that is that's stratospheric. 
Well, that's before the sanctions bite that's affecting real people. It's nice to fly flags and so on, but what if they can't eat? Yeah, yeah, but a lot of that approval is based on Vladimir Putin standing up to the West and saying, you know what, we're not going to take this. And it might be... It might be a while before sanctions actually impact the pocketbook of of the common man, mm-hmm. uh, the common person. And in the so, meantime, I guess the question then, if that's not going to happen, what might be the catalyst? If it's, if Putin's not going to reform, what mm-hmm. might be the catalyst to make things better from an investment point of view? See, I don't think there is going to be a catalyst, but there is always going to be volatility because mm-hmm. at a certain point, markets correct themselves. If things get too cheap. Some people do step in and say, you know what, this is ridiculously cheap. So historically in Russia, you can see the market bounce by 40% based on not all that much. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point, maybe it's Vladimir Putin getting up on the right side of the bed and saying something nice. And that lasts for maybe two weeks. And <laughs> now, that's not a particularly good way to invest, though, as to hoping which side of the no, bed no, he gets up. No, on. I agree with you. And I'm not, I'm not at all. I don't think, I think Russia is structurally an underperformer for years to come. Uh-huh. And it's a it's a market that you that you date. It's not a market that you get married to. That's for now, sure. Now, one market that's near Russia, that's related to Russia, that you do like is Mongolia. Uh, how would how is Mongolia investable? And and you have think has potential where Russia does not. Mongolia is the uh, it's the world's second least densely populated country. There's three million people in uh, in a country that's uh, it's like the 10th largest country in the world. It's absolutely huge. Um, and it also has enormous natural resources. The value of all the copper and tin and coal under the ground, some people forecast to be worth about $2 trillion. And to put that in context, the total economic output, the GDP of Mongolia is about $11 billion. So there is a scope for enormous wealth in Mongolia. Now, the trick always is monetizing that that enormous potential wealth. And uh, Mon- there are a few large mining companies that are active in Mongolia. Rio Tinto, in particular, is one of the world's largest mining companies. And they've been working closely with the Mongolian government to develop what will likely someday be the world's largest copper mine. Um, about a year ago, they uh, started negotiating for the second phase of this of this, uh, of the development of this copper mine, they're still talking about it. Um, in the meantime, a lot of things have slowed down in Mongolia. A lot of other investor, investors and investment is waiting for Rio Tinto and the government of, of Mongolia to sign on the dotted line. So it's a long-term play, but the, the catalyst is still off in the future to some extent. No, well, it's a long-term play, but this catalyst, at some point they're going to sign, and this will unleash something about $5 billion worth of investment and an economy that is the size of the economy of, of Amarillo, Texas. We're talking about $10 to $11 billion. So there's and a lot of leverage in it. You're saying a small change has a big impact because it's got a small exactly. base. Exactly. And once Rio Tinto signs, then a lot of other mining companies that have been standing on the sidelines will go back in. A lot of the service providers will go back in. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that you can play this, there are a few different ways. The company that has a lot of exposure to this copper mine is called Turquoise Hill Resources. It's uh, the ticker is TRQ. Um, another way uh, to play it is a coal company called South Gobi Resources that's traded in Canada. Ticker is SGQ, I believe. Both of these stocks, and, and you'll see a lot of these Mongolian stocks, have been completely decimated 
um, by a few things. First, there was a slowdown in China. There was a slowdown in commodities. And there were a lot of political issues going on in Mongolia about two years ago that caused a lot of investors to uh, to run away. There was a regulation that was passed um, that was perceived as being anti-investor. Uh, and that discouraged a lot of people. Then about a year later, a new government came in and completely reversed all of those regulations. So that's the catalyst, you're saying? Yeah. That was a that was a catalyst, but it was a catalyst that a lot of people didn't really notice or recognize because in a lot of these sorts of markets, investors say, you know what, you burn me once, I'm not going to be a fool, I'm going to wait around, I'm going to see if you really mean it this time. I see. And uh, that's partly why a lot of people are waiting for Rio Tinto to come back in. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kim Ishikan, who is the uh, analyst at uh, Stansbury Research. He's the editor of the SNA Global Contrarian Newsletter. We're, we're dipping into Russia and Mongolia and Kazakhstan, places you probably don't normally hear about very much, but you can see that the profit potential is huge in these places. Uh, so we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kim Ishkian. He is the analyst at Stansbury Research and editor of the SNA Global Contrarian Newsletter. And you can find out about it at globalcontrarian.com. Welcome back to the show, Kim. Thank you. Is that the correct uh, website for them to go to? Just want to make uh, sure yes, I got that right. Yes, sorry. Okay, very good. Okay, well, another country that's been big in the news lately has been Argentina, uh, which just in the last week or so uh, defaulted on its debt for the second time, I guess, since 13 years or so. And you were recently there. 
So kind of give us a sense of the state of Argentina, and now that it's fallen, are, are things so cheap? Sounds like a perfect setup for you. They're hated and cheap, and maybe there's some bargains there. Well, Jordan, Argentina is a country that about a century ago was one of the world's wealthiest countries on a per capita basis. And then, thanks to a combination of bad policies, bad politics, and bad luck, um, it's fallen to be really an emerging market. And in some ways, it's still headed in the wrong direction in terms of of economic output, in terms of growth, in terms of politics. And the what happened last week was that, as you said, uh, the country defaulted. Um, it defaulted on debt that it first defaulted on in 2001. At that time, it was in something like 95, $100 billion of debt that it defaulted on. And uh, what happened was that... 92% of all the bondholders agreed to um, a restructuring. And that is, so instead of getting 100 cents back on their dollar, they said, you know what, fine, we'll take whatever, something like 30 cents on the dollar. Uh, however, 8% of the bondholders did not take the deal. And fast forward 14 years, and that 8% has still not agreed to that deal. These so, are the so-called holdouts, right? Exactly, holdouts. Yeah. Or if you're in Argentina, they call them vultures. <laughs> it's <laughs> yes. not a very complimentary uh, term. Um, and Argentina has been has been making good on its debt payments to the 92 percent, but it's a it's a pretty complicated series of events involving a New York judge, um, because this these bonds are actually regulated by New York because that's the domicile of the of the uh, of the issuance. And the long and the short of it was that if Argentina had made a payment when it was supposed to um, on July 30th, that was the, the delayed date, then it might have been obligated to pay the other 92% of bondholders the same. It would have been obligated to give them the same terms as it gave as 8%. So the holdouts were about to, they were going to get some of what they had demanded, but through some clause in the in the bond prospectus, Argentina might have been forced to pay the other 92% who already agreed to a restructuring. They might have been forced to pay them by the same terms as the holdouts, which would have been, which would have cost Argentina potentially hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, mm -hmm. So this payment in late July was held up uh, and Argentina went into default. So they're still negotiating with so what, what is the impact on the country of their default on their debts? Well, the impact of the country, there are few impacts. Uh, first, a lot of people had expected that Argentina would be able to, cap, to tap capital markets again. So when you look at, at uh, debt to GDP, debt to GDP is a, a, an indicator to see just how indebted a country is. Argentina is actually not that indebted. Its problem is with cash flow. So it hasn't been able to, well... It hasn't been able to have the cash literally flow to the bondholder, even though it has the money. So if tomorrow they came to a deal, came to an agreement, Argentina would be able to go back and tap the capital markets. And Argentina does need money. It has, uh, has, it has enormous investment needs, it has enormous invest investment potential. But if they can't resolve this issue, Argentina can't go to the capital markets. Now, it doesn't sound like one, these holdouts are going to change, right? They think they're right and they're going to hold on. They want their money. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, 
Argentina did agree to pay 100 cents on the dollar. <laughs> and these yeah. vultures said, you know what? I don't think so. Um, so, so one of the, okay, uh, so the currency has dropped sharply since the uh, yeah, fall? Yeah, the currency has fallen. The currency has been in free fall for a long time. Uh, they've had a sharp a 15 20% devaluation earlier this year. Currency is still under pressure. And if the country can borrow, it makes it very difficult for companies in the country to borrow. So you have you know, pretty much every, most companies in most sectors have a very difficult time borrowing money, also provinces and uh, other governments. And what happens then is you have, you're going to wind up having higher inflation. Argentina already has some of the highest inflation in the world. It's somewhere around 40%. Um, the currency is going to continue to devalue. Unemployment is high. Uh, all of that is just, is just going to get worse in the short term. If, so is this a recipe for social unrest as well? It could be. Um, I think one of the reasons that it might not be is that there are going to be presidential elections uh, next autumn, so the autumn of 2015, and this is what a lot of people have really been waiting for. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons why, when you look at the price of Argentina, uh, Argentine stocks and, and bonds over the past few days since the default. I think this is the reason why they haven't gone down that much because people are anticipating that the current government will be out no matter what. So it and, sounds like a perfect setup for you. You've got a tremendous downside, uh, misery all around, blood running in the streets. Uh, the catalyst could be a new election with everything. They, they settle with the holdouts and everything's fine. So do you have some investments that you like there? I, I've looked at a number of companies. I haven't recommended anything yet because, you know, it's almost when, it, when things go bad in a market, it's difficult to, well, it's impossible to pick the bottom. And um, it's, I much prefer to miss the first 10 or 15% on the way back up than I like to get hit with that 10 or 15% decline on the way back down. And the thing is, uh, you can see how things are going to get better, but you can also see how things are going to get worse in the meantime. So You're kind I'm of a classic, sure. don't try to catch a falling knife kind of analyst, I guess, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. I <laughs> prefer for the knife to have fallen and for <laughs> things to have, <laughs> have really begun to stabilize because I don't want to lose 50%. If, you know, you could really, in theory, see how things could get a lot worse from right now, even if you do see... You know, you see the train, I mean, I'm sorry, you see the light at the end of the tunnel, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get hit by the train first. Yeah. Um, Are there other places in South America? I mean, South America's had a lot of similar situations, maybe not as dramatic as Argentina, where there's a lot of political inflation and all. Are there other places you like in South America that are still depressed? Well, I haven't visited elsewhere. Um, I think Brazil has a lot of the characteristics because sentiment towards Brazil has gotten really quite bad. I think the World Cup was in some ways a big, well, it was a big disappointment for Brazil, obviously, but a lot of investors have really soured on the market. They soured on the politics of it. Um, I think that uh, one market that I think is is very interesting is Venezuela. Um, Venezuela is an absolute disaster. If, if Argentina is kind of a mess, Venezuela is an utter disaster. Just the kind of thing you like. (laughs) Yes. Now, the trick is what I often find in a lot of these markets, the the difficulty is finding an investable angle because you can look at something and say, okay, this is, you know, sentiment is bad, valuations are low, I can see a catalyst. Um, But how do you actually invest in a security that will benefit from some sort of re-rating? And I don't know enough about 
Colombia, uh, I'm sorry, Venezuela, but it is a sort of market. Also Cuba, I think it's Is point, there a potential catalyst in, in Venezuela for uh, the fall of uh, you know, uh, the current government or something like that? You know, to be honest, Jordan, I don't know. I haven't. One of the ways that I, that I really try to understand whether bad sentiment is justified is to go there and yeah. talk to people, talk to investors, talk to taxi drivers, talk to whoever will talk to me, and I haven't been there. So I don't, uh, I can tell you So, what so I you mentioned uh, Cuba. Uh, is that potential turnaround as well? I mean, they've got great natural resources, and it's certainly been depressed for a long time. I think Cuba Cuba's probably been a potential turnaround for probably the past 40 years, and at some point it will be. Uh, and that point might be coming sooner rather than later with, uh, with the current leadership growing older and older. Um, mm. A lot of some markets you want to understand and get acquainted with, and then you just wait for the right time because there's no rush. And yeah. with Argentina, same with a lot of these markets, the time will come when they do have a crisis, everything will drop. So you say, okay, I understand where the bodies are buried. I understand the, the local dynamics. And that's the right time. And I think with Cuba, it might still be a while. Yeah, so there's no rush there. Now, another area you like is South Africa, which has also had troubles. They've had the strikes and uh, the rand has gone down. What, what do you like about South Africa it's, uh, that's depressing enough, but you still use the catalyst there? Hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I like something in South Africa, but I don't like South Africa per se as a contrarian investment. I think that the uh, a lot of the consensus about South Africa, I think, is, is accurate. I think a lot of people see years to come of social dislocation and of of um, a lot of the wrongs of apartheid being righted and that being bad for the economy and bad for the market. Mm -hmm. uh, however, what I think is interesting is that South Africa is one of the world's largest producers of platinum and palladium. And the dynamics of platinum and palladium mines in South Africa, well, they, they, as, you, as you mentioned, they just went through a, a terrible strike. Um, production is declining at some of these mines and um, costs are rising as a lot of the miners are saying, you know what, we can't live off of this. So either you pay us more or we're not going to work. And the mining companies are saying, you know what, the price is too low. The price, is, the price of palladium platinum is too low, so we can't, we can't pay you more. Now, at a certain point, something has to give um, because platinum and palladium are critical to, uh, well, the modern world as we know it. Um, I mean, demand is relatively strong for them, right, as far as demand catalytic converters and so on. And, yeah, demand for uh, catalytic converters in particular is just going to explode as China continues to uh, industrialize as more and more people buy cars. And also in China, the, the environment is no longer just an environmental problem, but the environment is a political problem. And I think we've seen in China that as soon as something becomes a potential political problem, they address it, they tackle it. Mm -hmm. So there'll be and, a lot of need for catalytic converters in China, which they don't have now. You're saying exactly. So what mm -hmm. I like about South Africa, well, what I like about South Africa is that my, the production of these two metals is, I think, in terminal decline um, in South Africa, and it's a question of time before. Well, we've already seen the, the price of platinum, in particular, reaching multi-year highs. I think that's going to continue because demand is strong around the world, and supply is going to continued to uh, decline. And also, I would just add to that, Russia is an important producer of both of these metals. So, so how would you play the rise in platinum and palladium you see coming? Um, 
There is a uh, convenient way that I like that uh, I recommend to my subscribers. It's, in essence, an, uh, a mutual fund that holds um, both of these metals. It's the tickers SPPP. It's called the Sprott Physical Platinum Palladium Trust. So they so own physical they, palladium and platinum. Exactly. They just it, It's kind of like GLD or SLV for gold and silver, right? It's similar, only uh, these guys actually, they hold the actual metal and they put it away in a vault somewhere. Uh, so when this company went public, they said, all right, we're going to buy whatever it was, $200 million worth in this proportion, and they stuck it somewhere. So mm-hmm. it, there's no derivatives or anything else to reflect the underlying value, but it is the actual value. Very good. Um, Okay, we have to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kim Ishkian. Uh, He is the editor of the SNA Global Contrarian Newsletter published by Stansbury Research. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Houston Real Estate Radio with Shannon Register. Tuesdays at 10 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Voice America's Variety Channel. As we have transitioned into a healthier housing market, supply has not been able to keep up with demand. Appraisals have struggled to keep up with rising prices, and lenders have overcorrected their loose lending practices. We track all this and more so you don't have to. HoustonRealEstateRadio.com Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kim Ishkian. He is the editor of the SNA Global Contrarian Newsletter, published by Stansbury Research. Welcome back to the show, Kim. Hi, thanks, Jordan. So now let's move to another place with all kinds of blood running the streets, which is what you seem to like so much, which is the Middle East. Um, we've got, uh, you, you were in Iran recently, you've got Israel and Gaza, uh, the war going on there, you've got the Syrian war, Egypt's in chaos, uh, ISIS taking over Iraq. Is this a wonderful place to invest because so much blood is running the streets? <laughs> well, uh, I can tell you about uh, Iran, which I, as you said, I was I visited Iran not too long ago, the other parts of the uh, 
outright war is, is I think, a difficult, uh, a difficult thing to do. But Iran is unusual and, in fact, unique because it's almost untouched um, by, uh, well, by, <laughs> by a lot of the rest of the world because of mm-hmm. sanctions over the past 35 years. So Iran has, has 75 million people and a uh, GDP of, of more than $500 billion. So it's not a small country. It's, uh, and it actually has a stock market of about uh, close to $200 billion. But over the past 35 years, because of, um, because of economic sanctions that the West and the United Nations and the United States in particular have imposed on Iran, you, uh, the country cannot, it can't participate in the global financial system. It can't send money from one, uh, from, you can't send money from Iran to anywhere else in the world using the, the SWIFT system, which is the, Global currency exchange, uh, currency transfer system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, what that means is that Iran, in some ways, is pretty self-sufficient, and its only foreign or its main foreign investors for a long time have been China and Russia, and they have not been all that interested. So, um, and then it's difficult to, uh, if you if you just think for a moment, if I was in Iran and I tried to access my Bank of America account online, um, it would have been shut down immediately. That's yeah. and I would I would not have been able to open it again. Um, I would have had to do all sorts of legal cartwheels with Bank of America to even get my my money out of my account just because I checked my account in Iran. So it seems kind of seems pretty depressed. It. I guess the question is: Is there a catalyst to turn things around there? Well, what's going on in Iran is you have a political leadership uh, that, on the one hand, you have the, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual structure, you have the religious leadership, which is ultimately, that's where the buck stops. Then you have the elected political leadership, which I think has a much better sense of the dynamics of what the population wants. And you look at the rest of the Middle East, and you had the Arab Spring not too long ago. You had uh, Mubarak being kicked out in Egypt. You had, well, then you have, as you said, war throughout much of the rest of the country. A lot of that, a lot of the, the core trigger of all of that was um, economic problems and economic challenges that the population faced. And in, in Iran, because of sanctions, people can't, they can't buy things. You can't just you, you can't buy cars. You can't buy, and most things that people in the West take for granted. You also can't travel. It's very difficult to leave Iran just because mm-hmm. other countries don't um, won't accept the passport. So, yeah. um, the trigger is the religious leadership recognize. Well, there are a few triggers. First, internal political dynamics of what the religious leadership understands needs to change, and the political leadership pressing the right levers so that what is a very conservative society can an economy can slowly become liberalized. Now the other trigger is uh I think more business and investment oriented. What's happened over the past I'd say six months to to a year uh is that there's been a lot of trade delegations from, for example, Germany, from France, and these are the CEOs of global multinationals based in these countries that have visited Iran to begin to build bridges, to begin to make contacts, to talk to um, local uh, Iranian uh, government. uh, Meaning they think that the sanctions are going to be loosened at some point. Yeah, and the idea is that at some point sanctions are going to be lifted. And I think that 
sanctions, that lifting of sanctions might be accelerated by a lot of these business interests in, mm-hmm. for example, France, going to their government saying, you know what, there's an enormous opportunity in this huge country that nobody else has invested in for us, and we want sanctions listed so that we can begin to invest in Iran's energy assets. And so Iran is it has too, the too, early, too early to invest in the possibility of sanctions being lifted in Iran, or are there opportunities now? You know, there are a few different opportunities. Um, I think one of them is... Uh, uh, on the streets of Tehran, I'd say somewhere around 60% of the cars are Peugeot's. Peugeot is a French car maker. Um, it's traded on the, uh, on the Paris exchange. Um, I think that's an interesting play because Peugeot totally dominates the market. And once Peugeot can sell its cars in Iran again, they'll do very well. Another mm-hmm. angle that actually I recommended to my, uh, um, to my subscribers is an oil company called Dragon Oil. And this is actually a producer in Turkmenistan. Uh, funnily enough, they also have, have some assets elsewhere um, in other, other uh, developing markets. But the vast bulk of its production is in Turkmenistan. And the thing is, is they produce oil uh, on the Caspian Sea coast, but then they have to get it to the Persian Gulf in order to transport it. Now, if sanctions are lifted, they will be able to do an oil swap. So instead of having to ship their oil out to the Caspian Sea. It, it helps if you look at a, <laughs> at a map as I, as I describe mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But if they can do an oil swap, that means that they can swap their oil at the Caspian for oil that is already on the Persian Gulf. And that could improve their margins dramatically. And in fact, this is what they used to do before sanctions really bit several years ago. So, so it's, it's, a, a, it's a, a long shot, up. but it's, it's possible, yes. Before we have about two minutes to go, I just want to shift briefly to the United States, which is the opposite of what you normally think about. Do you think the U.S. market is vastly overvalued and dangerous uh, to get into at this point? I think that the U.S. market is, uh, you know, you can look at markets and how they're priced. I think the U.S. market is priced for, uh, for perfection. Uh, I think that everything has to go just right for U.S. stocks to rise or to more or less stay where they are. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of things that could upend that apple cart. You have all sorts of geopolitical concerns around the world, any one of which could explode in, in a matter of no time. And you have all sorts of economic challenges at home, and you have the role of the Fed and how the role of the Fed is going to change. You have interest rates rising uh, quite, quite likely over time. Um, so there's think, risk in all these things because the valuations are so high. It's the opposite of what you're normally looking at, where things are so depressed it can't go down much lower. Here it's high, and you're worried I, a lot exactly. of things could make it go lower. I prefer to invest in markets and securities that are priced for disaster instead of priced for, for per- perfection. Because if it's <laughs> priced for disaster, the worst that happens is that things more or less stay the same. The best thing that happens is that just a few things go right, and... This, the price of that security goes through the roof, whereas price for perfection, a few things go wrong, and everything, something always goes wrong, as we all know. That's the way the world works. It just takes a few things to go wrong, and, and all of a sudden you're facing big losses. Very good. Quite interesting. All right, well, I appreciate your call uh, into the show uh, today. Uh, my guest has been uh, Kim Ishkin. He's uh, had kind of a tour around the world here. We've talked about Russia and Mongolia and... Iran and South Africa and Argentina and all kinds of interesting places. So I appreciate it. Tell them one more time how they can find out about uh, your newsletter. That would be at globalcontrarian.com, Jordan, www.globalcontrarian.com. Very good. Well, thanks so much. Uh, So I appreciate you being on the show, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly be following your advice. 
Super. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Jordan. And thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.